0: Thank you for listening to Franklin City Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information on Franklin City Church, please check us out at www.franklincitychurch.com. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with his blood, by grace and peace be multiplied to you. All right, you guys can be seated. All right, well, let's let's pray, and we'll jump in. God, we do thank you for your word, and Lord, we ask that uh, this morning as we proclaim it and preach it, that uh, uh, these would be your words, not mine. And God, we ask that uh, this would not just be information uh, in our minds, but that this would cause transformation of our hearts, um, that this would change our affections uh, and our attitudes of worship, Lord, and that we might uh, exalt you and glorify you through the preaching of your word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of 1 Peter. So when I was praying and thinking through what book of the Bible we should start out in, it seemed like God kept bringing me back to the book of 1 Peter. So to intro this book for you this morning, I want to kind of explain to you why I am excited to go through the book of 1 Peter. Well first, one of the reasons I'm excited is that this book is all about hope, having hope through suffering and persecution. Okay, and so listen, I I feel for you guys, for whatever reason, God has called you to be a part of a church plant. And I don't know if you guys realize this or not, but church planting is hard, all right? There are a lot of things that are hard about being a part of a church plant, and the enemy never likes to see a new work going forth, and so likely hardships and distractions and things will come up that will try to silence us and get us off of the mission that God has called us to. So not only do I feel for you because hardships might come our way as a church plant, but you also have a rookie preacher who is still learning how to be concise and to the point, okay? And so if you are going to have to suffer through most Sundays listening to me preach, then we need to at least be going through a book that will equip you for the task, okay? So that's why we are in 1 Peter. I feel for you guys. We will be in 1 Peter learning how to have hope through suffering and persecution, okay? Okay? But listen, the people of God have always had seasons of suffering and persecution. But in our culture, we have no idea how to handle it. All right, I mean, our idea of Christian suffering in America is not being able to eat Chick-fil-A on Sundays, right? I mean, but we persevere. Monday's right around the corner, so we hang in there, okay? But no, seriously, like, we don't have an understanding of how to handle the hardships that come our way. And so anytime we experience physical pain, we want it to be numbed or taken away right away, okay? So you can trust me on this. I work in an ER, right, so I see this a lot. Anytime someone's in physical pain, They want it to be gone immediately. But not only physical pain, but then when we experience emotional pain or mental pain, we also want those to be numbed and taken away immediately, right? So we turn to alcohol or drugs or substances to kind of help numb or dull the pain, or we turn to Facebook and TV and sports and entertainment to try to distract us from the pain. But listen, Christians and non-Christians in our culture Anytime we experience pain, whether it be physical, emotional, or mental, we have no idea how to handle it. And so when, then, when they come our way then, when hardships come our way and we don't know how to handle it, then we get upset, we get confused, and then we start playing the blame game, okay? So maybe we start blaming our families, right? Maybe it was their fault for how they brought us up and things that happened in the home. Or maybe we start blaming our friends for past things that they have hurt us, you know, in the past. Or maybe we even blame ourselves. Maybe some of you beat yourselves up for past mistakes and things that decisions that you've made that now are are causing hardship for you. Or maybe then you start to blame God and you lash out at God, like, God, how could you allow me to experience this pain? I thought you loved me. And then for some, they've experienced so much pain that it's maybe even caused them to lose their faith in God altogether because how could a good and loving God allow them to experience this suffering, persecution, or hardship that they are in? So in 1963, at the end of a tour of the United States, there was a guy named Helmut Thielek, all right? He was a distinguished German preacher-theologian, and he was interviewed by a group of journalists and theological students. And one of those present at the press conference asked Thielek what he considered to be the most important question of that time for Americans. And listen to what he answered. I believe it is still so relevant for us today. He said this, He said, it is the question of how Americans deal with suffering. Yes, you have heard it right, I mean the problem of suffering. He then goes on to say this, he says, again and again, I have the feeling that suffering is regarded as something which is fundamentally inadmissible, distressing, embarrassing, and not to be endured. Naturally, we are called upon to combat combat and diminish suffering, all medical and social action is motivated by this perfectly justified passion. But the idea that suffering is a burden, which can or even should be radically exterminated, can only lead to disastrous illusions. One perhaps does not even have to be a Christian to know that suffering belongs to the very nature of this world and will not pass away until this world passes away. He then closes with this, so listen to this. But that God can transform even this burden of a fallen world into a blessing and fill it with meaning. So you see we are what we're going to be talking about in the book of 1 Peter is how God can transform the hardships in our life, the hardships of living in a fallen world, and he can turn them into blessings and fill them with meaning. So we are going to learn in this book that we don't endure hardships and pursue holiness. No, but actually the hardships are producing holiness. So that's one reason that we're in First Peter, us as a church and us as a culture, we need to understand how to handle hardships when they come our way. We are also in First Peter because of the author, and I just love Peter, I mean he identifies himself here as the author of the book, he is an apostle of Jesus Christ, so let's talk a little bit about Peter, so that will help us understand as we go through this book uh, in the next few weeks. So Peter was one of the 12 disciples, he walked closely with Jesus, and not only was he just one of the 12, but he was one of Jesus' closest friends. And in reading the New Testament, you have just got to love his enthusiasm, right? I mean, he was impulsive, he was always jumping out of boats, getting to Jesus, right? I mean, he was just acting on a whim and just making quick decisions, right? Now, his mama named him Simon, actually, but when Jesus encounters him, he calls him Peter, or The Rock, and he will later go on to say, on this rock, I will build my church. So listen, he was the original one with the nickname The Rock. I don't know if you guys knew that. He was the original The Rock, not Dwayne Johnson, right? So back in Bible times, if you smelled what The Rock was cooking, it was likely fish, because he was a fisherman, okay? Uh, so. His nickname was The Rock, and I think we can all then take some comfort in Peter's life, right? What do we got flying around there? Okay. Uh, I think we can all take comfort, though, in Peter's life, right, and give all glory to God because he had a lot of ups and downs, and I think many of us can relate to that. So he exhibited great faith by stepping out of the boat onto the water, right? But then he lost faith. He grew fearful. He took his eyes off Jesus, and he started to sink. And then we see Jesus give him a huge compliment and confidence boost and says, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. And then later in that same chapter, Jesus rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. I mean, you can imagine the emotional roller coaster he must have been on in that chapter, right? And then when soldiers came to arrest Jesus, Peter was the one that drew his sword and took off a guy's ear. And I'm sure Jesus just had to be like, man, Peter, like just tone it down a little bit. I've already been telling these people they don't have ears to hear. You don't have to literally take them off, okay? Like just back it off a little bit, Peter, tone it down. But then obviously God worked through Peter then to to write the book of 1 Peter and 2 Peter, which are still ministering to his church and are ministering to us this morning. So Peter gives us hope as the people of God because we see what the powerful hand of God can accomplish in and through broken people who fail often. And I don't know about you, but that is an encouragement to me because in my flesh I am a weak and broken man who fails often. So this is, our, this is our author, this is Peter. He's writing this letter to give hope to the persecuted and suffering Christians, and he's writing to both Jewish and Gentile Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor, or what we know as modern-day Turkey. And he most likely wrote this letter from Rome during the reign of Nero, just before the time that even more intense persecution would come under Nero. So it's kind of funny, seemed like God knew maybe more persecution was coming. So let's look, look with me now at our text in 1 Peter, and today we're going to cover this, this opening greeting. So 1 Peter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Well, first notice what he calls the recipients of this letter. Look what he calls both Jewish and Gentile Christians who would be receiving this letter. He says he is writing to this to those who are elect Exiles, elect exiles. Now, elect exiles is how the ESV translates it. Some other translations might say elect sojourners or chosen aliens. But this phrase elect exiles, it's kind of an, an oxymoron. Like, it really seems to contradict one another. Why in the world would he call Jewish and Gentile Christians, why would he call them elect exiles? He could have said, hey, this is Peter writing to all Christians, right? He could have said, uh, hey, just checking in to all of, all of you guys that are in Christ, why would he say elect exiles? Well, you see, Peter, even in his greeting, has, is teaching us some rich and deep truth that we can enjoy by kinda focusing in and looking at this phrase. And these are truths that I believe will provide us then some clarity as to who God is, who we are, and why we experience hardship and suffering. So let's look at this phrase, elect exiles, elect exiles. Let's first start with the word exiles, okay? This word exiles, it could be translated strangers, foreigners, sojourners, aliens, refugees, or pilgrims, right? It is a term that is referring to a temporary resident in a foreign place. It's a term that's referring to a temporary resident in a foreign place. And listen, this term has such a rich history when referring to the people of God. Because God's people, starting back with Abraham, have always been referred to as sojourners and foreigners and exiles. Listen to what the author of Hebrews, speaking of the patriarchs, says in Hebrews 11:13. He says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Now, Peter also says, Exiles of the dispersion. Well, the dispersion was the term used by Greek-speaking Jews to refer to Jewish people scattered throughout the nations, okay? So Peter is using some old phrases that should remind us of the nation of Israel and the people of God as being exiles and sojourners and being dispersed among the nation and reminding us of the identity that we are temporary residents in a foreign place, but now, listen, he's not only just sending this to Jewish Christians, right? He's also sending this to Gentile Christians. And the Gentile Christians he was writing to, they probably grew up in the same towns that they were lived in. They, ne- they didn't necessarily, weren't physically scattered like the Jewish people had been, right? But remember, Peter was at Cornelius' house, and he saw the Holy Spirit come to the Gentiles. He was a firsthand witness that now Jews and Gentiles were one in Christ, So when he's writing this, and he's using the term exiles, and he's using the term exiles of the dispersion, he is not just referring to the Jews that are scattered, he is helping both Jews and Gentiles realize that as Christians, they are also dispersed and scattered throughout the world, and that they are and we are all living away from our true home in heaven. Because let me me remind you Philippians 3.20, which says, But our citizenship is in heaven. So listen, church, as followers of Christ, we are exiles in this world. We are sojourners. We are aliens. We are refugees. We don't conform to the values and worldview of the culture we live in. And it has always been like that for the people of God. And though, As we see, though, this cultural shift happen in our society, we are seeing some Christians just freaking out that Bible-believing Christians and Bible-believing followers of Jesus have become a minority in our society. But, but listen, don't freak out. The people of God have always been the exiles and the sojourners and the refugees, right? I mean, open up a history book or the Bible and you will see that the people of God have always been the minority and have been treated as outsiders, right? And they've been looked down upon and they've been mistreated and they've been despised. This is not a new thing. But you see, we forget that we are temporary residents in a foreign place. And I think this does then provide us some clarity and ease some of our anxieties when we remember our identity as exiles or sojourners. So church, remember that you are temporary residents in a foreign place. Now that doesn't mean that we aren't good citizens. We are called to to, uh, be good stewards and to cultivate where God has placed us and we are to contribute to society and vote and bless the city and, and bless our neighbors and take care of what God has given us but ultimately we do it understanding that our primary citizenship is in heaven and we are a part of a kingdom that is not of this world. So stop acting like this is your home and this is your kingdom. The decisions you make, the job you pursue, the house you buy, the things you collect, the activities you give your time to should reflect your understanding that your citizenship is in heaven and that you are an exile or a sojourner here and that you are a temporary resident in a foreign place and that you likely will be despised, looked down upon, mistreated and treated like an outsider for not conforming to the values and worldview of our culture." Good news, right? All right, we're done. You guys go in the joy of the Lord. No, right? We can't stop there. We can't stop there. Yes, we need to understand that first, that our citizenship is in heaven. And yes, we shouldn't be surprised when we are mistreated or treated like outsiders or foreigners or looked down upon. But listen, Peter doesn't just address this to the exiles. He addresses it to the elect exiles, to the elect Exiles. Now I realize we have a lot of different people in here from different church backgrounds this morning, and even bringing up the word elect or election might start to invoke some different emotions from different people in the room, okay? So some people, when I bring up the word elect, they start just really getting excited and geeked out and they start pulling out right uh, their Calvin and, and uh, uh, all these you know T-shirts and all their gear and all their reform stuff, right? They get really excited. They, they probably can't believe that I took this long to bring up the topic of election, right? Like I waited a full 20 minutes of the first sermon to bring it up. How could I have waited that long? Um, other, others of you, when I say elect, you might really start to kind of feel nervous and, and uneasy about this. Like I, I hope he at least talks about man's responsibilities and choices and, and gives a, a, a fair, you know, a side of that. And then some of you might just be really confused by why I'm even talking, you know, pre- prefacing all this and what's all the fuss, right? Some of you are probably then even still processing the fact that I brought up what The Rock was cooking in a sermon. And you're probably just kind of grappling with whether or not you can even stay at this church. But um, So let me just try to ease some of those anxieties this morning, okay? And listen, whoever Franklin City Church has preach and teach, it is our prayer that it will be biblically faithful, and that it will be empowered by the Spirit. And so the reason that we are the majority of the time gonna preach verse by verse through scripture is so that we don't skip over things that might make us uncomfortable. So we will attempt to study and preach the word, but then with a posture of humility, we will walk with one another as we seek to know God more and to experience him, okay? So listen, is God sovereign? Yes. Do men and women make choices? Yes. Is there some mystery there? Yes. Why is there some mystery there? Because any theological framework that people have that has tried to describe God will inevitably fall somewhat short because it is finite people trying to describe an infinite God, all right? And this mystery should stir our hearts to worship this great God that at times can feel beyond our understanding and should leave us in awe of him, okay? And so I will send out some resources throughout the week to try to help us walk through this, this process and this topic about how God's sovereignty and people's choices work together, okay? All that being said, the Bible says elect exiles, and so we are going to talk about it, okay? This word elect is used 22 times in the New Testament, so it would seem that we can't ignore it, and it always refers to a people that are chosen, okay? When it uses the word elect, it's saying chosen, a people that are chosen by God, now, it's also a cool word because just how the word exiles should conjure up past memories of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, so too this word elect or chosen should remind us of the people of God in, back in the Old Testament in the nation of Israel. So we read in Deuteronomy 7, 6, it says this, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. And then we see in Isaiah 45, four, for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen. And now in Christ, Gentiles, all of us, are now a part of the people of God, and in the same way that we are exiles and sojourners and temporary residents as they were, we also are elect and chosen as they were. So we read in Ephesians 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And then later in 1 Peter, we're going to read 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. But listen, this phrase, elect exiles, is still so crazy, right? Like, we are temporary residents, despised, made fun of, treated as outsiders and outcasts and yet we are also chosen, elect, and royal, and in Christ we are the most blessed and richest people in the world. It's almost like saying we are refugee royalty, right? It's like that, it's a crazy phrase. How can we be elect exiles? How can we be refugee royalty? But listen, this is not our home. We are foreigners here, and we often feel like and are treated like we don't belong. But listen, in Christ, we do belong, and we are a part of his kingdom, and we have been adopted into a royal family, who, and the kingdom is here, and it will be fully realized at the return of Christ. So take heart when you are treated or feel like exiles or refugees and cling to the hope that in Christ you are chosen elect and royal and have an inheritance awaiting for you in Jesus' kingdom. We are refugee royalty. Now, and doesn't this understanding of elect exiles then even help us understand a little bit more about what the church is and how it functions? So when we understand our identity as elect exiles, we understand that the church should operate more like an embassy in a foreign land, right? The church is operating under the sovereign rule of King Jesus in the middle of a culture that is not submitting to that same king. And then we understand why we say the process of church membership is important because what that is doing is allowing us to affirm one another's citizenship in our future heavenly kingdom. And just like uh, uh, foreigners overseas need to on occasion go to the embassy to renew their visas and passports, so too we as foreigners here need to go to the people of God, need to go to church and reaffirm one another's citizenship in our true kingdom. And then the church, the community of God's people, should be a glimpse to others of what the future heavenly city will be like under the rule of our good King Jesus. We'll look back at our passage in 1 Peter, verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be. Be multiplied to you. So we, here we see that we are elect exiles or refugee royalty, right? But we are that not by chance or by accident or by anything that we have done, but according to the foreknowledge of the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit and for obedience to Jesus. What a beautiful greeting this is, where we even get to see a picture of the Trinity. That we are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus. This is a power packed statement that provides purpose and meaning to us yes we are mistreated we are treated as outsiders and strangers yes we might face persecution and suffering but it is not at all an accident or a surprise to God it is according to his foreknowledge and it is a part of the sanctification process and it is for obedience to Jesus now look at this word foreknowledge Foreknowledge has to be one of the more common misunderstood words because of our English translations because if you just simply look up a definition of the English word in Webster's dictionary the word foreknowledge means an awareness of something before it happens but I'm concerned if we understand it in this way that we are missing out on some of the goodness of God I fear that we will diminish the sovereignty of God and obscure his grace if we just understand what we know of as the English definition of foreknowledge, because that is not how the Bible uses the word. Now, certainly the Bible does teach that God is omniscient, so he is all-knowing, he is aware of things that are to come, but when the Bible uses the word foreknowledge, it is meaning something much richer and much deeper, Here's a quote from A.W. Pink on the subject of the word foreknowledge. He says, The fact is that foreknowledge is never used in Scripture in connection with events or actions. Instead, it always has reference to people. It is people God is said to foreknow, not the actions of those people. Okay, So yes, he is all-knowing. Yes, he is aware of the events and actions that are to take place. But when the Bible speaks of foreknowledge, it's speaking of God knowing people. And when the Bible uses that phrase, God knowing people or someone knowing someone, it's not just saying that they know about them, right? But there's a much deeper, intimate, affectionate, loving that, that comes along with knowing someone, when the Bible says knowing someone, okay? So to use an example, Adam knew Eve, and nine months later, a baby popped out, okay? I hope I don't have to spell that out to you, but it means more than just knowing about someone, right? It is, I have set my affection upon them, and I have known them okay? So then when we read verses like Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. God had set his affections upon you. And in 1 Corinthians 8.3 says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God, right? God has set his covenant affection on him. John 10.14 says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And then we read in Romans eight twenty nine, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So we are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of the Father, and that means that he has set his affection and his intimate, deep love upon us. So we are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God, in the sanctification of the Spirit, Now, sanctification, it's kind of a churchy word, and and what it really means is it's the, the spirit working in a believer to bring about the progressive growth of holiness, okay? Or maybe more simply put, it is the process of becoming more and more like Jesus, okay? And listen, we will talk a lot more later on in this book about how God often uses persecution, pain, suffering, and hardship to further us along in the sanctification process. These aren't just wasted hardships that we go through. This isn't just purposeless pain that we endure. We have such a good God that he often turns suffering into blessing and fills it with meaning, okay? So this is a big point that I'm gonna repeat probably every week as we go through this this, uh, series, so hopefully it's ingrained in your mind, but we don't endure hardships and pursue holiness, we pursue holiness by enduring hardships, okay? So we don't endure hardships and pursue holiness, we pursue holiness by enduring hardships. Now look back at our passage, uh, 1 Peter 1, verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Well, here we see an exhortation for obedience, right? Obedience to Jesus, but we also see a comfort for our continual failings. He is reminding us of the gospel. Now, the gospel is the good news that God saves sinners. And that salvation was accomplished through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And because of our sin and rebellion against God, we were exiled, we were separated from the presence of God, and sin entered into the world, and suffering entered into the world, and hardship entered into the world. But God so loved the world that he also entered into the world. And Jesus, who was fully God, fully man, he willingly sojourned among us. And this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And he died a death on a cross in our place, and he rose from the dead, defeating Satan's sin and death. And his blood has now covered our sin and he's taken away our guilt and shame. And in return, he's given us his righteousness or his rightness before God. And he adopts us into the family of God and gives us peace with God. And this salvation, it is received by grace, and it is received through faith, through faith, excuse me. And he calls us to now turn from our sin and trust in the saving work of God. Of Christ. But just like Peter, God knows that while following Jesus, we will still trip, stumble, and fall into sin. And so we don't just need the gospel at salvation, we need to be reminded of it and we need to rest in it every day. So, in in, in closing, let me share a story I recently came across. In 1981, a successful businessman named Eugene Lang was asked to speak to a group of 6th graders in East Harlem. Now this was a group of students that was mainly minorities. They grew up in poverty, broken homes. Many of them would not go on to graduate high school. And so Eugene struggled coming up with what he would talk about, what would get their attention, how would he keep their attention, uh, and he just wasn't really sure what to say. So when he got up to speak before them, he decided to throw out his notes and just speak from the heart. And he told them this, he said this. He said, stay in school and graduate, and I will pay everyone's college tuition. Now at that moment, the lives of all those 51 students changed because for the first time they had hope and they had a future inheritance awaiting them. And 48 of the 51 of that class went on to graduate high school and take him up on his offer, which was dramatically higher than the average uh, graduation rate for that school. And listen to what one of the students said after Eugene Lang made that promise. This is what one of the sixth graders said. He said, for the first time, I had something to look forward to, something waiting for me. It was a golden feeling. And so listen, church. Understanding our identity as exiles and as temporary residents in a foreign land, it will provide us some clarity when we experience hardships and struggles and we're mistreated, but we also have something much greater to look forward to. We have something waiting for us, and to use that student's phrase, it is a golden feeling, knowing that our citizenship is in heaven and our royal inheritance awaits us. We have a good God that desires us to experience the grace and peace that he has obtained for us. What the Father foreknew, the Son accomplished, and the Spirit has sealed. And even in the midst of hardships as an exile and life in a fallen world, grace and peace have been abundantly provided to us. Pray with me. God, we know that we do live in a, a fallen world that sin is entered in, God, and there are, there are hardships, there are times of suffering, and yet, Lord, we also know that you are a good God, who you saw sin entered in, and you saw hardships enter in, and you, God, also entered in. And Lord, we, we praise you for what you have done, what you are doing in calling a people to yourself. Lord, may we rest in, may we enjoy the grace and peace that you have obtained for us. And may we walk with one another through hardships, through pain, through suffering, knowing God that you turn those times of pain and hardship into blessing and you fill them with meaning. We will rest and cling to that. We will take joy in the hope that we have with you. We love you, Jesus.